All right, good morning. Nehemiah chapter 3, please. I'm going to apologize in advance. There are a lot of uh, Hebraic names in this chapter, and I'm going to make my attempt to read them. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 32. Open your Bible or follow on your device. The topic... The Israelites are assigned certain sections of the wall and specific gates to repair. The title of our message, Where Are You Going to Wall, Gate Builders? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning thus far. Bless our study in your word with the sense of your presence in our hearts and lives, dividing between the soul and the spirit and speaking to us, Lord, where no one else can. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. What city in the world matches your personality? Yes, there is an online quiz to tell you. Yes, I took it. Even though the last quiz I took, what piece of Ikea furniture are you, said that I was the trusty lack side table. It sells for $8.99. Do you ever do those quizzes? They're uh, insane. I was pleasantly surprised this time. Capri, Italy. Described as a place of admiration and refuge since the time of the emperors of Rome. Whether or not it matches your personality, you may have a favorite city. It might be your hometown, might be a vacation or a retirement destination. God has a favorite city. There's only one city in the world that is called by his name. The Bible includes nearly 800 references to Jerusalem called the city of our God. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14, for the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place, this is my resting place forever, here I will dwell for I have desired it. Psalm 87, 1 through 3, his foundation is in the holy mountains, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. The Bible sometimes says that you are like a city. Proverbs 25:28 Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Jeremiah 1:18 For behold I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. The wall surrounding the city God loves was in ruin, exposing his people to danger. He sent Nehemiah to fortify the wall. Without discounting the importance of fortifying that wall, because God sometimes likens his people to a city, we have a biblical freedom to make application of it to ourselves spiritually. And so I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the 10 gates remind you to fortify your hope in the Lord. And number two, the 10 gates remind you to fortify the household of the Lord. Let's take a look first of all at our hope in the Lord. Now, I thought we were talking about the wall, not gates. Well, chapter 3 describes fortifying of the wall by going from gate to gate for a total of 10 gates. It names the gates, and for the most part, from their names, it's easy to agree upon their meaning for the fortifying of our spiritual lives. There's there's no real secrets uh, to the names of these gates uh, that we can't uh, agree on. Nehemiah uses a Hebrew word, shazak, translated in the New King James Version, made repairs. The word is used 35 times in these 32 verses, which obviously should get our attention. 
The word is variously translated in different versions of the Bible. If you were to look it up in Strong's Concordance, you'll find that there are literally dozens of ways of translating it. I like the word fortify. It's as good as any, and I like it for two reasons. Number one, it sounds more intense than made repairs. You can repair something without improving it or making it stronger. Fortify conveys the idea that it would be stronger than before. And second, fortify better communicates that the wall would need constant care, and unlike repairs, it couldn't wait. As I said, the fortifications are described going from gate to gate in a counterclockwise direction. And so in this first point of our study, we're going to concentrate just on the 10 gates. So as I read, we'll skip over a lot of things, but we're going to concentrate on the gates. Then we'll come back and talk about a few things towards the end. And so starting in verse 1, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Now, you've probably seen signs on the gates of factories that say deliveries only or trucks use other gates. Certain gates are designed and designated for certain purposes, and that was the same uh, truth in Jerusalem. The sheep gate was the gate through which animals were brought into the city, notably the lambs for temple sacrifice. Nehemiah could have started with any of the ten gates. There's no reason to start with one and not the other, but he didn't. Starting at the sheep gate reminds us that the only way to God is through sacrifice. The gate reminds us of Jesus Christ, whom John the Baptist identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Revelation, Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. In all, he is referred to as the Lamb about 30 times in Revelation. It's one of John's favorite titles for Jesus, connecting him to the temple sacrificial system and reminding us that he was the final Uh, sacrificial lamb that God required, the one that all other sacrifices pointed to, not just lambs, but other animals as well, reminding us that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs cannot take away sin. They can only cover it temporarily until the lamb of God comes, came, and takes our place on the cross and exchanges our sin for his righteousness. And so it's it's really the only place to start logically and spiritually. This is the spiritual gate which every sinner must enter. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out to find pasture. We fortify our hope in the Lord, first of all, by getting saved. Now, I'm using hope throughout in the biblical sense of a certainty. Biblical hope is certain. It is not a hope for. It is what has been promised you and what will certainly happen for you or to you. And so by his death on the cross, Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Believers fortify their hope in the Lord at the Sheep Gate by reflecting upon their salvation by grace through faith. If you did nothing to obtain salvation, you can do nothing to maintain salvation. It is the gift of God. And sometimes I think with everything that's going on around us in our own personal lives and in the crazy world in which we live, 
uh, just falling back for a moment and realizing what great salvation belongs to us in Jesus Christ. And that all this, all, all our trouble and all the world's trouble will soon be over. And we will be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. Salvation is uh, where it all begins. Uh, and, and that required the sheep the, the, to be sacrificed and for the Lamb of God to come and fulfill all of that. So if you're not saved, get saved. If you're saved, be fortified in the hope of eternal life. Uh, verse 3, and the sons of Hasenah built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabal, uh, uh, first one I really ruined, Meshezabal, Meshezabal or Scheherazade, one of the two, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Now, there's no mystery as to the fish gate. Merchants used this gate when they brought fish from the Mediterranean Sea, and there may have been a fish market close to that gate. At least seven of the original 12 disciples of Jesus were fishermen. Jesus famously said to them, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And so it was a great metaphor for what Jesus was going to do in their lives and in the life of the world to come. Now we are saved to serve. All of us are to do the work of an evangelist. Each of us has gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit. We fortify our hope at the fish gate by serving the Lord. Then verse 6, moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Pasaiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besideah, repaired the old gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Meronathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs, and they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harumah, uh, Har, Harumaf, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, made repairs. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the uh, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, as well as the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Now, regarding this gate, Nehemiah is the only book in the Bible where it is called the old gate. Things that are old remind us of who and what came before us. In the case of fortifying our hope in the Lord, uh, one application is to remember that he alone is the ancient of days, that Jesus is the creator of all things. Christianity isn't a religion that was founded in the first century by Jesus or his followers. It's the fulfillment of God's promise to our first parents dating from the Garden of Eden. This is the time of year when uh, educational television especially has all kinds of specials about Easter and Jesus and what really say, they say went on in the first century. 
And, and one sub-theme, of course, is that Christianity started with either Jesus himself or with his followers that they founded the, the religion that the world calls Christianity. Uh, but we have uh, the old gate in the sense that we understand that Christianity, as we understand it, was founded well, in eternity past, but they're in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned and God said, I'm going to deal with this, and the way I'm going to deal with this is by coming as the seed of a woman and uh, taking your place. And then that happens historically with the coming of Jesus Christ. And so he is the fulfillment of a centuries-old promise in the Garden of Eden. And so, uh, secondly, Christianity is not really a religion, as you are fond of telling your friends and family. It's a relationship with the living God. Uh, and it isn't one of many ways to salvation. It is the only way and truth in life from eternity to eternity. And so all we ask, all we would humbly ask is that people would be honest about uh, what is really going on. And, and so these guys that are on TV, these professors, uh, if they would say, well, Christians claim that, they, that what happens uh, at the cross started in the Garden of Eden or actually even before that in the mind and heart of God and his plan to save lost mankind. And so a lot of times, you know, they, they, they fool people by saying, well, there were all these other ancient religions that predate Christianity. Well, that's, that's just absolutely false. It's not true. And another way to approach this, no other belief system gives you any hope. That's partly because they all demand that you earn your salvation. And if God is uh, thrice holy and lives in heaven, that's impossible to do. You can never earn your salvation. You can't work your way to heaven and you can't get there by deeds. It has to be a gift. And it is, it's God's indescribable gift. And so uh, that is one thing that absolutely sets Christianity and our belief apart from all the other philosophies and isms of the world is that they all depend on works. Even Roman Catholicism, where uh, I grew up in as a child up until the time I was confirmed, uh, essentially it replaces grace with works. Uh, most Catholics have no idea if they're going to go to heaven at the end of their life because it's based on sacraments and works and things like that. And serious Catholic apologists will tell you that if you do not celebrate the Mass every Sunday of your life, you're certainly not going to heaven when you die, but to purgatory to work off your disobedience. And so even something similar to biblical Christianity and its doctrine uh, it requires works, and certainly all the other world religions depend upon works that cannot get you to heaven. And so there is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 13, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. The valley gate was where Nehemiah had set out on his night survey of the wall uh, as a matter of interest. Now, it's almost impossible to not associate valleys with trials and sufferings. That's kind of a universal uh, image that transcends even the Bible. You hear about people, when people tell you they had a mountaintop experience, you know that that was some kind of great, wonderful uh, uh, experience in their lives. When they tell you that they're in the valley, 
you get the understanding that they're going through something difficult. We're told in the Bible, of course, famously, that we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and so the valley is identified with that kind of thing. The hope that you fortify at the valley gate is that the Lord cannot and will not leave you or forsake you when you are in the valley. Then verse 14, Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the leader of the district of Beth Hakerem, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. I wonder if this was good duty. I mean, when, you, you know, when, you, you, when they were handing out assignments and they said, hey, is this the one gate that nobody wanted, the, the refuse gate? Because yes, uh, this was the gate through which the city's garbage was taken to be dumped. Not, ever, not very glamorous, sort of like owning Mediterranean Avenue in Mo- Monopoly. Uh, did you ever land on that right past go and you think, should I buy this? Uh, I mean, it's, it's like a slumlord kind of a thing, you know? I don't know if you can even win if you own it. But anyway, our fortification at this gate is for Jesus to cleanse us and make us more like him, to deal with the garbage, as it were. We read in Ephesians, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, for us, that he might sanctify and cleanse us with the washing of water by the word, that he might present us to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. And then in 2 Corinthians 7, we read in terms of our cooperation with that action, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Uh, You are being transformed, changed from glory to glory. The Lord will complete the work he's begun in you. You will awake in eternity in his likeness. It is a tremendous hope that you have as a Christian. And so we fortify our hope at the refuse gate as we understand the changes that are constantly taking place in our life and the ultimate change when we will be as the Lord. Verse 15, Shalun, the son of Kal Heze, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Beth Zur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs, the tombs of David, to the man-made pool as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites, under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Kilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren, under Bavai, the son of Henadad, leader of the other half of the district of Kilah, made repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired the other section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Binwi, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, Pediah, the son of Perosh, 
made repairs. Now this involves the fountain gate that's located near the Pool of Siloam, was often used by the people for ceremonial cleansing before proceeding on to the temple. This speaks to us of the living water of the Holy Spirit that empowers us. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, streams or fountains of living water will flow from within him. The hope that the indwelling Holy Spirit brings is a topic that could occupy us for a long time. For example, we're told in the New Testament, he is the guarantee of our completion in Christ. Not a guarantee like limited powertrain warranties, but an absolute guarantee. Do you ever think that your car or something else was covered by warranty? It very rarely goes your way. Uh, usually there's something. We have a, in the kitchen here, we have an ice maker, a, a kind of a commercial professional ice maker, and it went bad. And um, they came out and they said, well, yeah, it's bad, but we're not going to be able to do anything on the warranty unless you've installed a uh, water filter. And we had. <laughs> gotcha. So they fixed it for free. But uh, nobody tells you you have to have a water filter. Uh, but, but without that, it's in small print in Arabic, I think, in the manual or something. <laughs> but, uh, and, you know, and it, but if you don't, that they blame everything on that and, and you're out of luck. And so uh, there's no limited uh, spirit in our life. It, it, we have an abundance. As it, it's just a constant flow, an amazing fountain. I remember one time I was uh, listening to, I think it was Don McClure teach on Exodus about the water that came out of the rock. He says, don't think that it's just some hose bib that you turn on. Uh, I remember when the Laporte showed their video of uh, India, they show, hey, here's the city's water supply. And it's like a little... It's like your hose bib and you bring your gallon thing and it fills up after three hours, you have a quart of water, you know, that kind of thing. When, that, when Moses struck that rock, uh, spoke to the rock and then struck it, I'm surprised he didn't go surfing. I mean, that, uh, that water came out for millions of people and their animals. And that's a picture of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It should be a rushing fountain from our lives and a, and a fountain meaning that it's clear and pure. And so hope is fortified at the fountain gate, realizing that God dwells within us, our comforter. What a tremendous thing. The permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, something no other generation of believer has known, uh, belongs to us as the church of Jesus Christ. And what a tremendous hope it is on every level. It's a hope, uh, I could just go on and on. It's a hope of our obedience do you realize you can't obey God without the Holy Spirit? That's what people try to do who live under legalism. They say, oh, I keep these rules and regulations, and outwardly maybe, but even that you'll fail. But with the Holy Spirit, you can do all the things Christ has commanded you to do. In fact, you need to tell yourself that. Whenever you say, I just can't do this anymore, yes, you can. Yes, you can do it. If it's something that the Lord says you can do, because he does it through you. And so they just go on and on about the hope of the Spirit. Verse 26, moreover of the Nethanim who dwell in Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. I'm not going to make any jokes about the water gate. This one led down to the Gihon Spring, which was located adjacent to the Kidron Valley. The water gate is intended to remind us of the word of God. We already quoted from Ephesians how Jesus washes us and it's by the word of God. 
It was at the Watergate that Ezra and the priests conducted a great Bible conference and explained the scriptures to the people. So there's really no argument here. It's, it's the word. Hope in the Lord is fortified as we encounter him on the pages of scripture. No one would argue that, that a Christian should read his or her Bible and should seek the Lord there. I don't know how many times people have come in and said they didn't know the will of God or they were questioning something. And um, one quick question I always ask people is, has the Lord shown you anything in the word? Has he given you a verse or a section of scripture? And a lot of times the Lord has. You go, well, yeah, the, I, I keep hearing the same verse. Every time I turn on the radio, every time I go to church, everybody in, in the background, I hear this. And oftentimes it will speak to your situation. It's not, not, you know, it's not mystical. It's not just like opening your Bible and pointing. Don't do that. There's a famous joke, pulpit joke, that says they open your Bible and you point, it says, and he went and hung himself. Uh, so you, you don't want to trust in that kind of magic. You know. But God is trying to speak to you, and, and no, normally he'll do it through his word so you can be certain that it's him. And it's not just some crackpot that comes up with a, a word from the Lord. And uh, I've, I've had the privilege over my career as a pastor of receiving many words from the Lord. And they're always terrible words of judgment from people that don't like me for some reason. And so anyway, beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. The horse gate was close to the king's stables, and the men of Jerusalem would ride their horses out of this gate to war. Spiritual warfare, inevitable. Good thing we have the whole armor of God to fortify our hope in Jesus. The warfare itself fortifies our hope in the Lord in the sense that if I'm at the horse gate in my life, it's a proof I've been enlisted by the Lord. Verse 29, after them Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah and Hanun, the son of Zaleph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. The east gate led directly to the temple. It's probably what we know today as the golden gate. Tradition tells us that Jesus entered the temple on Palm Sunday through this gate. So that was our Palm Sunday message right there. See how you can tie that in? Golden gate. Jewish and Christian tradition both connect the golden gate with the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem. And for us, we look back on his first coming, but we look forward to his prophesied second coming. Now, it's not escapism to get excited about the fact that the Lord is coming back first for his church, but then ultimately in his second coming to establish a kingdom on earth. And um, I, I long for that day. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate and as far as the upper room at the corner. The Hebrew word for this gate has a... Uh, military connotation. It refers to the mustering of troops for numbering and for inspection. Since we were just thinking of the Lord's coming, this gate could remind us that at his coming, his second coming, he will judge between believers and non-believers, the famous sheep and goat judgment of Matthew, and he will establish the millennial kingdom on the earth. Our hope is fortified knowing the Prince of Peace is coming to right wrongs and to rule with righteousness. Don't you just get angry that the right thing doesn't happen in our culture anymore. All over the world, wrongs are prospering, and there's a righteousness, and, and, and it's not hard to know what it is, 
there's coming a time when Jesus reigns that there will be a rule of righteousness on this planet. And between the upper room and the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Back to where we started, between these 10 gates, the wall itself was being fortified, connecting all around the city. My grandboys were over the other night playing Lego Batman on Nintendo. In certain levels, all that Batman or Robin have to do is walk through a door or a gate, and they receive power in the game. These 10 gates were to walk through each of them and be fortified in the Lord. In fact, in our lifetime, we walk in and out of many of them all the time. For example, you might be at a valley gate in your life. There's no use standing around arguing at the valley gate, wishing instead to be walking through a golden gate. Don't let it halt you. Go through it with the certainty that Jesus is with you every step of the way and that all must work together for the good. And so you can look at these gates that way. If your life is like a city, a walled city, and and we can use that metaphor because the Bible does, then there are gates, and and these 10 gates at least, and there are going to be times when you are called upon to walk through the valley gate, and no one wants to. I don't want to, but as you do, it is with the hope that the Lord will fortify your life as you walk with him through it until he's done with that particular gate at that particular time. And so um, be encouraged. The 10 gates also remind you to fortify the household of the Lord. We miss some things by concentrating on the gates. Two things in particular should have struck you. First, did you catch the varied occupations of the construction crew? Nehemiah, we remember, was a cupbearer. There were priests and goldsmiths and perfumers and merchants and folks that worked for the government. Also mentioned were the Nethanim, that's a group of temple servants. In one instance, a man's daughters were mentioned. And second, there was another highly repeated word in that section. 16 times Nehemiah noted that the people worked next to one another. I've pointed out before, talking mostly about Nehemiah, how incredible that such an immense project was entrusted to people with absolutely no skill to accomplish it. God supernaturally empowered perfumers and such to build his wall. There were no actual wall builders Uh, No brick masons, no stone masons among them. They'd been for many years captive in Babylon. We see their occupations. Uh, God supernaturally did it. We should mention the nobles who thought themselves too good for the work. What a bunch of losers. Rank and status outside the church mean nothing in the church. The greatest of all is the servant of all. It's a hard lesson sometimes for people to learn, even Christians, They start coming to a church and they realize that though they may have ascended out in the world and hold a high position, that that actually means nothing in the church because they might be, uh, you know, have to be subordinate to somebody who never even went to college or wasn't properly trained as far as they're concerned but has a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so these nobles, a bunch of losers. While we're on the subject, Nehemiah is often put forth as a great leader. Now, he was, but only because he was a submitted follower of Jehovah. Uh, Don't think that God scoured the earth looking for the most qualified leader. He picked Nehemiah, an unlikely candidate, and he molded him into a leader. Now, back to where I was going with all these observations. Here we've seen a group of God's people from all walks of life working side by side right next to each other to build something on the earth for the Lord. If your Bible wasn't open to Nehemiah, you might think I just described the church. We often say that the church is not a building, 
meaning it is not the brick and mortar we are meeting in that matters, but the believers in that meeting. That's true, but the church is a building in this sense. We are each compared in the Bible to living stones. 1 Peter 2, 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Jesus said he would build his church. Seems he does it on earth by taking the stones he has made alive, Christians, and placing them next to one another as he wills in what we recognize as a local congregation of his people, the church. It's implied that people are next to each other physically. It is this next to that so many who profess Jesus are actively disobeying by remaining independent and aloof from church. It's not superior. They're not so spiritual that they don't need church. It's actually insubordinate. I can't tell a person how often to attend church or how involved they need to be, but I can tell believers who disdain the church that they are sinning. We are each called upon to fortify the household of faith by being next to one another, building up one another to go out and fulfill the Great Commission. That's just basic Christianity that so many are getting away from. The city that matches my personality isn't Capri, Italy. It's a city I've only seen glimpses of on the pages of the Bible. It's the New Jerusalem. It's the city whose builder and maker is God. It's going to be coming down from heaven. It's your city, too. We read in the Revelation, and I, saw, uh, I John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. While we wait, good to be next to you for this hour this morning and for these many decades in this household of faith. Amen?